the very last sermon in this series, A.D., A New Beginning, and we're in Acts chapter 10. This morning, we're going to talk about foreigners in the family. Now, sometimes we don't like foreigners in the family. When the doctor diagnoses you with that dreaded diagnosis of cancer, uh, that's an unwelcomed diagnosis. I mean, after all, the body works like a family. The organs and the muscles and the tissues and ligaments, they all work together for a sense of harmony. And when, and when that foreign power of cancer comes in, it disrupts the unity of the family. It is an unwelcomed foreigner. Science continues to look for that elusive transitional fossil that ties us as human beings to the animal kingdom. Now, I personally think that's going to remain elusive because I think God designed us as, as the crown of his creation. I think God specifically designed the animal creation uh, for their uniqueness as well. Did he build adaptability and change into our DNA? Well, certainly. He did so so that we might survive. But adaptability and changeability is a whole lot different than all of us starting out as a one-celled random mutation accident at a point in time in history. I believe that we bear the stamp and the image of our Creator, and therefore we don't like foreigners in the family. But wait, if we are the latest in the evolutionary process, then then that makes us foreigners in the family, doesn't it? And I suspect the chimps aren't any too happy about us invading their territory. As a matter of fact, I've always liked that poem uh, attributed to Gilliam Weaver that goes like this. Three monkeys sat in a coconut tree discussing things as they're said to be, said one to the other. Now listen, you two, there's a certain rumor that cannot be true, that man descends from our noble race. Why, the very idea is a sad disgrace. No monkey ever deserted his wife, starved her babies, and ruined her life. And another thing you'll never see is a monk build a fence around a coconut tree and let the coconuts go to waste, forbidding all other monks to taste. Why, if I put a fence around this tree, starvation would force you to steal from me. Here's something else a monkey won't do. Go out at night and get on a stew or use a gun or a club or a knife or take some other monkey's wife. Yes, man descended that ornery cuss, but brother, he didn't descend from us. <laughs> so, so I understand the monkey's frustration, all right? And I certainly understand the fear that goes along with cancer. But what I've never been able to understand what never has made sense to me is our discomfort at other human beings that don't look or talk or think quite like we do being a part of our family. Never understood that. After all, if God loves foreigners and invites the foreigners into his family, why should we be so resistant? You see, we ought to be glad that God loves foreigners and invites them into his family because we are the foreigners. I, I want to tell you the story of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, and it will explain what I'm talking about. And, and actually, folks, Acts chapter 10 ought to be our favorite passage of Scripture. <laughs> and, you know, anytime somebody says, what's your favorite chapter in the Bible? We ought to say Acts chapter 10 because that's where our story started. Very nearly everybody in this room, it ought to be your favorite start. Now, if you grew up uh, and you were born Jewish and you grew up Jewish and then you became a Christian later on, this doesn't apply to you. You started the journey as the whole story, but 
for the rest of us who were born as Gentiles, not Jewish people, this is where our story begins. And it is so powerful, it is so life-changing that Luke, the author of Acts, devotes three chapters to the story, Acts chapter 10, 11, and chapter 15. As a matter of fact, it is the longest single-running narrative in the book of Acts, 66 verses from the opening verse of chapter 10 to the closing verses of chapter 11 where Peter defends his own actions. Some call this chapter the Gentile Pentecost. Even Peter himself compares the conversion of Cornelius to the event that birthed the church on that Jewish holiday called Pentecost. So you say, well, who in the world was this Cornelius guy? (laughs) Well, Cornelius was a Roman centurion soldier stationed in Caesarea. He was a devout man, a God-fearing man who genuinely wanted God's will to be done in his life. The Bible said he was a good man prayed daily at around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and one day God sent an angel to respond to his prayers. And, and, when, and when Cornelius said, what, what is it, Lord? The angel answered in chapter 10, verse 4, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. Now remember last week when we talked about the resurrection of Tabitha, she lived in Joppa. So Peter is still there in Joppa after that crowning miracle of his earthly ministry. So Cornelius does what the angel says. He sends for Peter. And it's the next day before these guys arrive at Peter's house. Now, you've got to understand the timing is just phenomenal here. It's about lunchtime. It's, it's noon. Peter is hungry. He's on the top level of the house. The, 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 the roofs are flat. They're up there a lot. And he's hungry. And, it, and I don't know if whatever they were fixing down below in the kitchen, the smells were wafting up, but it says he was hungry. And he goes into a vision or a trance. He's not asleep. He's very much awake when this happens. This is not an ordinary dream like you and I have in the middle of the night when we wake up and say, what in the world was that all about? That is the most cockeyed kind of, and nothing fits in that dream. Everything is convoluted. That comes from eating too much pizza late at night. (laughs) This, there's nothing confusing about it. Uncomfortable? Yes. The message was quite uncomfortable to Peter, but he wasn't confused. He, He knew exactly that God was speaking to him. So, there is this vision. And here's what, here's what happens in the vision. You know, in the Old Testament, Peter growing up as as a good Jewish man would never have eaten anything considered unclean. There were several animals that were designated as unclean animals, okay? So this sheet or something like it simply drops down from heaven, and on this sheet there are all kinds of unclean animals, and and the voice says, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, I'm not going to do that. And God says, don't call anything unclean that I have made clean. And the sheet goes back up into heaven. And it does this three times. He gets this thing three times. Now, anytime something happens three times, anytime a word is repeated three times, like holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It is, a, it is a focus of emphasis. It is pay attention to this. This is important. So Peter knows this is really important. So the sheet goes up the last time. He comes out of this vision and he's up on the rooftop, and he's saying, what in the world when there's a knock at the door downstairs? And he goes down, and here are the men that Cornelius sent saying, would you come with 
us to Caesarea. Well, Peter knows the two are connected, and so he goes, and he arrives at Cornelius' house. Now, you got to know, no good Jewish man would have stepped foot inside the open door of a Gentile home. But Peter enters. And this is what we read. We pick up the story in verse 25. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence, but Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. Now, I love this about Peter. Peter doesn't say, oh boy, this guy thinks I'm pretty good. He says, I'm just a man. Get up. This is not about anything that I've got to do. I'm not about worshiping me. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So, when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Now, Peter didn't raise any objection, but he's way out of his comfort zone at this point in time. I mean, he's in territory where he's never been before, but he knows that God is leading at this moment. So, Cornelius said, well, we were praying, an angel came and told me to send for you. And at that point, Peter picked up the story and preached about Jesus and the resurrection. And as he was preaching, the Holy Spirit comes upon Cornelius and his house, and they begin to manifest the same things that happened when the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles on the day the church began, and it was a glorious moment. And Peter realizes God is at work. In verse 46, it says, Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. History is never the same. It is interesting to me that in Acts chapter 9, the, the bitter persecutor of the church, Saul of Tarsus, becomes the wonderful, incredible preacher of the gospel, Paul, the apostle. And from Acts chapter 9 forward, Paul then becomes the central figure of the New Testament. Acts chapter 10, we meet Cornelius, and we never hear about Cornelius again. And yet we are here today because of him. If it were not for Cornelius, the church might have remained exclusively Jewish. If it weren't for the great apostle Paul, whose ministry was almost entirely to the Gentile world, the gospel might have remained contained within the Middle East. But Paul took it and was the first to go to the European continent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is where our story begins. Now, throughout church history, sometimes we have been resistant, the church has, to those who are foreign in some way to us. I mean, look at Christianity. Look at, there are hundreds of denominations of Christianity. Why? Well, because either we've disagreed about something, or we like something done a different way, or we interpret the Bible in different ways, and we can't seem to work past that, and so we create all these different families, because we don't want somebody thinking foreign thoughts about the Bible in our group. For some in the church, the idea of being with others from different backgrounds and culture and ways is way beyond their comfort zone. And, and I've never understood that. I am a better person when I'm exposed to others in the kingdom from around the world. The faith experience from people in other countries and languages and cultures makes me a better person when I'm around them. It challenges my faith. It challenges me to live better for Jesus Christ. 
This congregation, I believe, grows stronger every time somebody walks through these doors into this worship center who is from a different race, a different culture, a different language, because we grow together and we become better prepared for the future and we certainly become better prepared for heaven itself. After all, the living Lord that I serve spent his life quite differently than I have. We do not share a common heritage. Jesus was Jewish. I am a Gentile. We do not share a common language. Jesus spoke Hebrew and Aramaic. I speak English. The Lord and I do not share a common race. He is Semitic. I am Caucasian. We do not share or relate generationally. He grew up in the first century. I am the product of the 20th century and counting. And yet, I will tell you this morning that he, for all of his differences from me, is the most important person in my life. Why are we so opposed sometimes to others in the family? Sometimes they may be foreign to us, and we are foreign to them, but in Christ we are one. One color is not more desirable than another. One race is not more loved by God or needed in the church or more spiritually anticipated in heaven than another. All of us have one thing in common, and that's what separates us from God in the first place. We are sinners in need of a Savior. And it makes no difference, folks, whether you are male or female, red, yellow, black, or white, rich or poor, healthy or sickly, strong or weak, handsome or homely, athletic or clumsy, popular or unpopular, liberal or conservative, or whether you are intellectual or you got common sense, we are all coming from different backgrounds with one goal, and that is in Christ we find salvation. Without Him, we are all lost. And in the church, while we might be foreigners to one another, we are family because of His grace. Just a few minutes ago, before getting into the sermon time, we celebrated what to me is the highlight, the pinnacle, the most important moment of, of why we come together on Sunday morning. It's the Lord's Supper. Uh, if we had to give up certain things on Sunday morning, uh, I'd give up everything else before I'd give that up. You know, I, I'd give up the sermon. I'd give up the singing. I'd give up everything. The one thing that I think is central to what we do here is the Lord's Supper because every week we come together. And, and across this room, a few minutes ago, we were all focused on one thought, and that was the death and the suffering of Jesus Christ. When we ate that bread and we drank that cup, we were all of one united mind. Right now, your minds are going a lot of different directions. Some of you don't even realize there's a sermon going on. <laughs> so, so I know we're not all on the same page right now, okay? But, but when we come to this table, we're, we're all on the same page, and, and that brings us together in a sense of, uh, of unity. Now, it's been a long time since we've done this, but it, it illustrates the point I'm trying to make. Uh, I, you've all come from a lot of different backgrounds. I don't know what your denominational background is, whether it's a Baptist or Catholic or Methodist or something like that you came from. And if you didn't come from a church background, say none, all right? But on the count of three, everybody out loud, all at once, shout your background, all right? One, two, three. Yes. Well, that was confusing. Could, could you really make out any one sound in all that? It just sounded like a, a jumbled mess. Okay, now, on the count of three, everybody say Jesus. One, two, three. 
Jesus. That's pretty clear, wasn't it? You see, it, it's not about who we have been. It's not about where we've come from. It's who we are in Christ. He is the one that brings us together in a spirit of unity. And there's some powerful truths that grow out of this story. So let me hit them quickly this morning. Here's the first one. Sincerity is not enough. No one has ever been more sincere in his faith and efforts than Cornelius, but sincerity is not enough. If sincerity was sufficient, if we could just call, say to God, hey, I'm sincere in what I believe, then we would have bragging rights because it would be up to us then. I am so sincere that God has to accept me. The other thing is sometimes we in our culture and, and sometimes in our political correctness equate being sincere with being right. Well, they are so sincere about what they believe, they must be right. But sincerity and truth are not equivalent. I mean, that's no more clearly seen than in Saul of Tarsus. Saul was sincere in his persecution of the church, but he wasn't right. And God had to use a blinding light to get him to stop and to change his heart and his life and his mind forever because, you see, you can be sincere about something but be sincerely wrong. Just because you believe fire won't hurt you won't keep your hand from getting burned if you put it in the flames. You see, what you believe must be worth believing. It must be credible. It must pass the test of historical, intellectual, spiritual scrutiny. Just because you're sincere about what you believe doesn't mean it's the right thing to believe. And if you're going to base your eternal life on what you believe, you better hope it's believable and credible. Just being sincere isn't enough. Now that said, when you come to the truth, when you find that which is intellectually, historically, spiritually credible, to believe is only the step one. You also have to be sincere in that belief. Sincerity without the truth is not enough, but truth without sincerity isn't enough either. Because you see, just because you believe it, if you, if you don't, aren't sincere in what you believe, then, then that puts forth a hypocritical spirit. And when you and I are hypocritical, it is demeaning not only to us, it is demeaning to the Word of God, it is demeaning to the church, it is demeaning to Jesus Christ Himself. So you got to understand this morning that when you come to the truth, you got to be sincere about the truth. Because you see, sincerity is the hallmark of the Christian life. In 17th century London, jewelers who worked with gold all the time plied their trade in what was called Goldsmith's Hall. And, and, and then, like it is today, I mean, I can't look at a ring and tell you what quality of gold is there. Uh, and, and most people can't unless you know the business. And so, because there was so much going on around there, that Goldsmith's Hall came up with a way of guaranteeing the quality of the gold. And so, if you were a part of the guild what, and you had gold, what you would do is you would stamp it with a little tiny crown and the number 18 below it, and that was then the guarantee that what you were getting was 18 karat gold. It was called the mark of the hall, and then later it simply became the hallmark. We are God's hallmark, stamped 
with his spirit. His spirit lives in us. We, we bear his image, and how we live is interpreted by other people as whether or not God is credible and worth believing. So make sure what you believe is worthy of your belief, but then make sure you're sincere about following the truth so others can believe it as well. Here's something else. Goodness is not enough. I'd take as many men like Cornelius as God would send us here. He was a man who had reverence for God. He was a man of generosity to share with those in need. He was a man of prayer, obedience, integrity, influence, action. He was a good guy. You'll not find a better man than Cornelius. But Cornelius wasn't good enough. I got news for you. I'm not good enough. You're not good enough. Being good enough is never good enough. What about his goodness? And, and if it was, we'd have bragging rights again. Hey, look at me, I'm good enough. No, no. All it takes is one sin to separate us from God. It's never been about our goodness. Our responsibility is to point others to Jesus Christ, who is good enough. Here's, here's another thing. God does not show favoritism. Acts chapter 10, verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize this. He's, in, he's there in Cornelius' household. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. God wants any and all to come to him through Jesus Christ. Here's what you need to remember. What I need to remember is that God cares as much about the person halfway up the block as he does the person halfway around the world. And he wants the person who is halfway around the world to be saved, but he also wants the person halfway up the block to be saved. It's not like, well, which one do I choose? It's never an either or with God. It's always a both and. And remember this, the person that you least like to be around. You know the person I'm talking about that if you see walking down the street, on the, the, you, if you've got time, you'll cross the other side of the street so you won't have to confront... Am I the only one that has this issue? In my, do you know what I'm talking about? Okay, all right. You, you got the kind of, you know, the person you least want to be around. Do you realize that God loves that person as much as he loves you and he loves me? That's, that's, a, hard, that's a hard one to grasp because we think, well, God wants me in his kingdom. Yes, God does want us in his kingdom but he doesn't want us any more than he wants the homeless, the drug, addict, drug addict, the prostitute, the white-collar criminal, the unfaithful spouse, the neglected parent, and the person who is trying to live a really good life so that he or she can make it there on their goodness. You see, it's never been about either or. Well, I'll take you, not so sure about over here. It's always both and Peter, later on, writes in his letters to the church, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Sincerity isn't enough. Goodness isn't enough. But here's the good news. Jesus is sincerely good enough, and he is all we need. Last thing, God is not always predictable. <laughs> God works in unique ways, but God's open doors are not always logical or easy or comfortable. Sometimes we talk about when God opens the door, it's a good thing. Well, yes, it's always a good thing, but it's not always an easy thing. When Peter walked through that open door into a Gentile house, he was way beyond his comfort zone that day. But, but, look, but that's God. 
Look, look at everything we've seen in the book of Acts up to this point in time. Two Galilean fishermen, Peter and John, become the primary movers and shakers in the early days of the church. Who would have seen that coming? The most notorious anti-Christian crusader, Saul of Tarsus, becomes the great apostle Paul. Who would have believed that possible? The most frightening, frightening encounter of the first century church was when God said to Ananias, I want you to go talk to Saul of Tarsus and tell him the good news about Jesus Christ and make him see again. And Ananias went, who could have, who could have conjured that one up in their minds? After hundreds of years of distinguishing between clean and unclean food, God uses unclean animals to teach Peter a lesson about those who were coming into the body of Christ. And here's the biggie. When God chooses the Gentiles, ever stop and think about this? God doesn't choose an ordinary Gentile. He chooses a Roman. And not just a Roman, but a Roman soldier. Those guys were just despised by the Jewish people because the Romans occupied the land of Judea, and Roman soldiers could make you do anything if you were a Jewish person. And they had all the disgust in the world for Roman soldiers. So when God picks the first Gentile into the church, it's a Roman soldier. Who would have seen that coming? But you see, while God has, is the same yesterday, today, and forever, while he is the changeless one, he's never the predictable one. I like what John Ortberg wrote. He said, imagine a kingdom where the, first are la or where the last are first, the least are the greatest, the servants are heroes, the weak are strong, and the marginalized are loved and cherished. Imagine a world where outsiders become insiders, where people who lose their lives end up finding their lives where people who die to themselves and their guilt and their sin and their selfishness end up being brought to life, imagine that your little broken story can become a part of a larger story that all ends well. Isn't that great? Would you have written the story this way? Not on your life, but that's God in his unpredictable nature. So keep your eyes open. Watch for his work in your life. Get beyond your comfort zone. You never know when God will use you to lead a 21st century Cornelius to Jesus Christ. And if he, even if he doesn't know this, even the tiniest whisper of the gospel may change people's lives. Dr. Boris Kornfeld was a Jewish medical doctor who was imprisoned by Stalin back many years ago in one of his gulags. Uh, Dr. Kornfeld saw so much pain and misery and suffering in that prison camp that he began to search for a meaning in life. And one of the other prisoners, whose name has long been lost to history, shared with him the story of Jesus Christ. Now, here's a man who grew up Jewish, who now suddenly hears the story of Jesus Christ and puts all the pieces of the puzzle together and becomes a follower of Jesus Christ there in this Russian gulag it then becomes Dr. Kornfeld's idea and, and passion to share that story of Jesus with as many other prisoners as possible. Dr. Kornfeld had a patient that he didn't think was going to survive this medical procedure, the anesthetic he had to work with, because he became, as one of the prisoners, the prison doctor. But this man, he wasn't sure was going to survive. And so, using this poor anesthetic, the patient would come in and out of the anesthetic during the procedure. And every time he was coming out in pain, Dr. Kornfeld would whisper in his ear, 
tell him the story about Jesus Christ, told him about the, Jesus dying for our sins, told him about his burial, told him about his resurrection. Every time he would sort of rally during, during the procedure, he would whisper something else in his ear, and he kept on operating. When the patient finally came to, he heard shouts and cries down the hall because Dr. Kornfeld was being murdered for whispering the news about Jesus. Dr. Kornfeld died, but his patient lived. And his patient went on to become a, a Nobel Prize winning author whose books have changed history and lives. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was the man who Dr. Kornfeld touched with just a whisper. God is leading you. Now follow. We may be the foreigners in the family, but he loves us as much as, well, everybody else.